Have you noticed that most good stories have a battle between good and evil? A real battle between good and evil. It doesn't matter if it's Cinderella versus the evil stepmother or Luke Skywalker versus the evil empire or the best movie out right now, I think, Despicable Me 2, <laughs> when Gru battles El Nacho. I mean, this is real stuff. These battles are epic. And I think the reason why we identify with them is because they represent our lives. Every day, every week, we live in a battle. And it's there. It's constantly there. And we have this battle going back and forth. So we connect to these stories. We like them because we could identify them. And the interesting thing to me is that the Bible also has a ton to say about good and evil. In fact, the overarching theme in the Bible is this gigantic battle between good and evil. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. And there's this ton of kingdom language in the Bible. So some of you here know the story of the Bible. Some of you don't. So I'm going to give you the entire narrative of the Bible in about two minutes. Genesis 1, the revelation. And it goes like this. God created the entire world and everything that was in it, and all of it was perfectly good. He even created men and women in his image, and they were good. And then soon darkness entered the world, the kingdom of darkness. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Human beings chose to disobey God and do their own thing and follow other gods. And then as we go through the Old Testament, we see tons of good guys and bad guys. And some of the good guys were set up to be good guys, and they were good guys, but then they chose evil. Even some of the, the bad guys were set up to be good guys, but they chose evil. And this went on and on and on. By the end of the Old Testament, all the folks were still in deep trouble. But God's story has this amazing central character named Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. He's not plan B. He's plan A from the beginning. God knew what humans were going to do, so he provided a rescue plan in the Messiah, in the Savior Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says, I have overcome the world. So Jesus represents the kingdom of light, and he's going to battle the kingdom of darkness. Now, the good news is that by the end of the story, at the back of Revelation, we know how the story ends because we get some glimpses of it in the book of Revelation. I'm going to put a couple verses up on the screen. You don't need to turn to them. They're just real short to get us to the end of the story. These are both out of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and this is John speaking. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of, of fire. See, what happens when Jesus comes, he triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is condemned to prison, but he hasn't been thrown into prison until the end of the story. So we can't miss the fact that we live in this odd, strange, in-between time where the kingdom of darkness is defeated, it's condemned, but it's still here. It's still around. When Jesus comes back, then there will be no more kingdom of darkness. And it'll just be the kingdom of light. Satan gets thrown in the pit of fire. And we're all going to say, 
amen, because we're going to get new bodies. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to live ever and ever with Jesus. Now, as we think about that dichotomy between the kingdom of heaven uh, and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, we have to realize that this problem is not insurmountable, but it's real. And I think it's kind of interesting that Christians are optimists because most of you have heard John 10.10 quoted. It says, what Jesus is talking, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. How many people have heard that verse? Just about everybody. Do you know that's the second half of the verse? And we don't usually quote the first half of the verse. The first part of John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, we don't like that, so we just don't quote that. But that verse, in that one verse, is the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of life. The, king, the, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And it says the, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus comes that we might have life and have it to the full and have it abundantly. So that's what's going on in the two kingdom worlds. And we have to realize that there's good all around us and people do good things. And there's bad all around us, and people do bad things, and Satan does bad things. So the question I have for you today, and what we're going to talk about tonight, is how do we live in this craziness? It's just kind of hard. I don't know about you, but I think life's hard. Because regularly, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, you see this back and forth, good, evil, good, evil. And, you know, I, I like the fact that... Um, that America's in the World Cup. I would have liked it better if they hadn't let them score that last goal in the last 15 seconds and they were in the round of 16. But there's also all the evil going around. You know, Rack's raising its ugly head again and all this stuff is going to go on and it'll probably go on forever and ever until Jesus comes back. But I would submit to you today, I'm going to throw it up on the screen, that the short answer, the punchline, if we jump to the end, how do we live in the craziness, is up on the screen. Walk by the Spirit the Holy Spirit of God, or live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Anytime the Bible says walk, we could insert the term live, and you're going to be okay, because it's basically the same thing. So I think that's the answer. That's how we live in this two-kingdom world. But that's easy to say and hard to do, right? Like, what do you mean by that? How do I actually do that? So what we're going to do today, uh, or tonight, we're going we're to talk about four primary topics about the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you a couple of applications. But before we get into that, we need to go a little nerdy academic, and I apologize for that, but we need to start with a good foundation of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if we put this slide up on the screen, um, is depicted in this screen as part of the Trinity. And this will take a couple minutes, so bear with me, but the Trinity is not a Bible word. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it's a good word and it describes good theology. And what the Trinity basically says is that we believe in one God and three persons. One God, three persons. So that's what this diagram is depicting. God is at the center. There's just one God. And he exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, which I'm in the front of, right over there. So God is, uh, the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not God. You get what's going on here? The point of this, and this is what I want you to take away from this, 
is very, very, very simple. And that is the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That is a foundational truth. Now, you might be saying, okay, that's great, but what's the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? I believe what that diagram shows, and the Bible does say that in a bunch of places that we, we don't have time to go to. But what I, what I want to introduce to you tonight is the fact that our backgrounds make a huge difference of how we approach the Holy Spirit, a gigantic difference. Some of us grew up in churches that never talked about the Holy Spirit because if you did, weird stuff might happen, right? People might start dancing or raising their hands or... Maybe somebody will get healed. You know, so we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then maybe some of you grew up in churches that were maybe more Pentecostal, and the Spirit was talked about all the time, and, and you were very comfortable with them. But it might have gotten a little off the edge sometimes. And I think one of the reasons why churches today avoid talking about the Holy Spirit is because of the controversial topics, like speaking in tongues and the healing power in the Spirit. And baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's that all about? But what I want to submit to you tonight is that those topics, although important, are secondary. They're, they're important. We should talk about them. We will when we get to them in the scriptures. But they're secondary to what I've come up with tonight for you is four primary topics that I think are more important than those topics. Not that those topics aren't important. And the first one we've already covered. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is God. Now think just over your last week, month in church, is that the way you think and is that the way I think? Or do we put the Holy Spirit in the back seat? That's, that's what we want to not do at sunset. We want to have our doctrine and theology exactly aligned up with the Bible. And the Bible shows us that the Holy Spirit is God. So that's an easy point, the first of four points. For the second point, we're going to now get to our Bibles, John chapter 14. If you're not there already, turn to John chapter 14. And as you turn there, I want to give you the context of this passage. It's a fairly long passage. It spans three or four chapters called the Olivet Discourse. And this is Jesus before he goes to the cross, but right before he goes to the cross, the last week. And he's giving his disciples some final instructions. And one of the big parts of the instructions that, that Jesus is giving to his disciples is he's going to instruct them about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus knows the Holy Spirit is God, so he wants to make sure that the disciples get what's going on with the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. We're going to read three verses here. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit, and in my Bible it's capitalized, so it's referring to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, and catch this, for he lives with you and will be in you. So what Jesus is doing here is he's promising that the Holy Spirit will come. He's referring to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. On, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and that's part of the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament where we're told that uh, God's going to pour out his Spirit on 
the people. Now, with this promise of the Spirit, Jesus, notice in verse 16, says that I will give you another advocate. And the reason why it says another advocate, because other places in the Bible, it says that Jesus is our advocate. But we actually have a really good deal. We get another advocate in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So he's another advocate. And to really understand what's going on here, we have to look at what that word advocate is in the Greek, and it's paraclete. Paraclete. And it could be translated, depending on your different translations, as advocate, helper, or comforter. It's translated different ways. But what it literally means is one who comes alongside. One who comes alongside. So what Jesus is telling his disciples here is, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to live in you and be with you and come alongside you and live life with you. That's amazing. It's radical. It's very profound. It's a bit mysterious. Like, how does that work, you know? Uh, the Holy Spirit's not this little leprechaun that jumps in our bloodstream and jumps into our heart, right? I mean, it's not that. But somehow the Holy Spirit in the Spirit comes inside of us. And it's not just us individually. It's us as a community. In your missional communities, your missional communities can be uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the church should be filled with the Holy Spirit as a community. It's not just an individualistic thing. Now, to understand this one more level deeper, we do need to look back to the Old Testament. And we're not going to turn to any passages, but I'll just explain. Some of you are familiar with some of the, the workings of the Old Testament. And remember, Jesus was talking in the first century. And they were in Jerusalem right before he, he went to the cross. And what was on the hill, probably within eye distance, is the temple. And the temple was this big, massive, ornate building. And how the building the temple building was built, was uh, described in very good descriptive detail in the Old Testament. And what the temple was meant to be, what God designed it to be, is a place where God met the people and for the people to meet God. The temple was where the presence of God was. In fact, the Holy of Holies, the central part of the temple, was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt and as the Israelites sacrificed animals uh, for their sins on a regular basis, once a year it all culminated in the Day of Atonement. And this was a big day. It was the only required day of fasting by the Israelites. So all the Israelites had to fast for a day. And then the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of all the Israelite people. Why did he do it there? Because that's where the presence of God was. That's where God dwelt now, today, you probably noticed that as you came in, we weren't sacrificing lambs and bulls outside, right? Uh, that's a good thing. And you notice this isn't a temple, right? This is an auditorium. So why don't we do that anymore? Well, it's because Jesus is the high priest and the final sacrifice. So we don't need to do sacrifices anymore. Jesus is the final sacrifice. And we don't need to go to temple anymore. In fact... Instead of us going to the temple, the Holy Spirit comes to us. In three different places in the New Testament, Paul says that we, believers, are the temple of God. In fact, he actually says our bodies are the temple of God. 
Now, I remember in a Bible study about 25 years or so ago, first time I heard that, this guy next to me bumps, he goes, man, you got a pretty sad temple. I said, well, I'm working on it. But that's not what Paul's talking about, right? He's not talking about how much you go to the gym and how buff you are. What he's talking about is the temple is where the Holy Spirit resides, and when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he resides in us. So that's what's going on here. So the, the point there, the point of this whole passage, what Jesus is talking about, is the Holy Spirit comes inside us. Okay, another scripture passage. Turn your Bibles just a couple pages to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. John 16, verse 7. Jesus is talking still part of the same Olivet Discourse. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. The, Jesus, the disciples of Jesus must have been really freaked out when he said that. Unless I go away, the Advocate, capital A, Advocate, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, and about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned, like we already said. So Jesus says this radical thing that it's better that he leaves. And the disciples go, you're the savior of the world. Are you kidding me? It's better that you leave? And Jesus says, yes, because when I leave, the Holy Spirit's gonna come. We have trouble with understanding the Jesus side of that. We have trouble understanding the Holy Spirit side of that. Because the reality is, as much as I wish Jesus was here teaching people and healing people, Jesus himself says it's better that inside of every believer all across the world is my Holy Spirit. And he's gonna be convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The sin part in that last part, what's going on there, this is a quote from George Ladd. He says, the greatest sin is the sin of unbelief that sent Jesus to the cross. So that's one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to convict people of, the world. And notice it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world. So this part of the work of the Holy Spirit's not just for believers. It's for believers and unbelievers, the entire world. And in terms of righteousness, you know, we know Jesus was crucified for being a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. But when he uh, was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, that's proof positive that he is the righteous one of God. He is righteous. And then the Holy Spirit's going to convict us about judgment. Because we already said this, the death of Christ means that the prince of this world, Satan, is defeated. And, he, and it says in here that he stands condemned. That's the last part of the verse. He stands condemned. And as we said earlier, he hasn't been totally dealt with. He hasn't been thrown in the lake of fire yet, but that's coming. That day is coming. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit comes inside us, and the Holy Spirit convicts us. There's one more thing that I think we really want to settle on, on, on the, the principles of the Holy Spirit, and that's in the book of Romans. And turn over there. It's Romans chapter 8. This is a little bit longer passage, but Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 5. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you just a little bit of introduction to the way Paul is writing here. He talks about the flesh, and he talks about it in a very negative way. In the context of this passage, when Paul says the flesh, 
He's talking about the part of us that desires evil stuff. I hate that part of me, and you hate that part of me, but you know there's a part of you that desires evil stuff. And we're going to talk in a little bit about how we deal with that. But when Paul talks about the flesh, that's what he's talking about, your sinful desire, the part of you that desires evil stuff, in the context of this passage. So let's read that. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. And as we read this, watch Paul make this big contrast between uh, the flesh and the spirit, the sinful desires in the spirit. Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you believers, are not in the realm of the flesh. But you are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, so Paul's starting to conclude this argument, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And the last verse for tonight is verse 14, the concluding thought of Paul. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So, What Paul is saying here at the beginning of that passage in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit, is we have a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. Daily, weekly, monthly, minute by minute, we're constantly making choices to obey or disobey. And I like to think of the Holy Spirit as the perfect gentleman. He doesn't force you to obey. He convicts you, he lives inside of you, he prompts you, he encourages you to live right. But at the end of the day, it's your choice and my choice whether to obey or disobey. Also notice in this passage the black and white reality of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Paul does not sugarcoat this at all. He says, if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not in Christ. Black and white no two bones about it. It's just the way it is. Now what happens, and we're going to do another little two-minute academic side trail, so if you're tired, you want to take a quick cat nap, now's the time. I will wake you up in a couple minutes. But here's the rabbit trail. One of the things that's going on here with the Holy Spirit being inside us is that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now that's a technical word. And the best way to think about regenerated is that I get a new heart. So it's a heart transplant. When the Holy Spirit comes inside us, we get a heart transplant. The old heart's tossed. We have a new heart. And the Holy Spirit's with us, in us, and alongside us. Now, I think Paul knows that this is a challenging topic because across Paul's writing in the New Testament, he gives us three metaphors, three word pictures of how that works. 
So for those who aren't taking a cat nap, uh, you might want to write these three passages down. They're not on the screen. I'm just going to shout them out to you. The first one is John chapter 3. And that's the passage where Nicodemus and Jesus are talking, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus was confused because he was thinking physically and asks, what are, i got to crawl up in my mother's womb and be born again. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And Jesus starts to explain it to him. But the metaphor, the picture, is that you need to be born again. I need to be born again. A new birth with a new heart. So that's one word picture, metaphor, that we get from Paul. The second one is in Romans chapter 6. And it's a picture of spiritual resurrection. And what's going on there is the, the, the metaphor is that we're dead with our old heart. Spiritually dead. And with our new heart, we're spiritually alive. So we're resurrected from death to life. Now, some of you might recognize that is the chapter that Paul, uh, Paul talks about baptism. And baptism is a beautiful picture also of being resurrected from death to life. And it's a symbolism of becoming a follower. So when Tim was baptized a couple weeks ago, when we put him underwater, if he stayed underwater for more than, I don't know, what, three or four minutes, Tim? You're goner, right? You're dead, right? Uh-oh, too long. So bring him up, and then he is alive. So that's the second metaphor. We're resurrected to a new life. And then the third picture we get in Paul's writing is in 2 Corinthians 5. And some of you are familiar with this. is the new creature, new creation language. We are a new creation. The old is gone. My old heart's gone. My new heart's here. I'm a new creation. I'm a new cre creature. The problem, though, is my sinful nature stays. I still have that. That kind of stinks. But I have my new heart, so I could now deal with it better. See, when I have a, my new regenerated heart, my fundamental desires are now godly. My fundamental desires are now godly because of my new heart. I still have this sin thing that I need to deal with. Now, for those of you taking a nap, wake back up and go to verse 12. So Romans chapter 8, verse 12 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. And then he goes on to talk about to live according to the spirit, not the flesh. This obligation is a responsibility. Again, it's a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. And then he finishes uh, this thought down in verse 14. For those of you who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you might be saying to me, okay, I kind of get that. I kind of see this. But you haven't really stopped and thought about that that we are children of God and the Holy Spirit, God himself, is with us. Look at this whole package on the screen. If you look at all four points, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of right and wrong, of sin, just, uh, judgment, and righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit, be, by nature of being inside us and being the paraclete and coming alongside us, he guides us, he comforts us, he actually, in summary, he leads us from place to place and what to do and what to say. This is like the best deal ever as a Christian. You have this Holy Spirit in you. This is how we navigate life in the two-kingdom world. 
when we don't know what to do because we have the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light and you're at work and you're, con- you're confronted with some kind of conflict because your coworker's doing this and this person's doing that and my body hurts and I need to get a good night's sleep and all this stuff of life and you go to the Bible and it says, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me if I should quit my job or not. The Bible doesn't tell me what college I should go to. The Bible doesn't tell me the name of the person I'm supposed to marry. But the Holy Spirit will lead us into all those decisions correctly if we follow him with a true servant heart. But we can't mistake the fact that the Bible does tell us a bunch of stuff. So don't go off on that track that I don't need the Bible. The Holy Spirit primarily speaks to us through the scriptures. And he tells us a bunch of things about how to live. But the nonspecific stuff, we need to, to live with him, to, to be with him and, and live with him. Now, for some of you, these four things might be brand new. They might be brand new. You may not have ever heard this before. And if so, it's going to take a while to digest it. For others in the room, you've heard this before, and you go, yeah, I get it. But, you know, where's the practical part of this? Because this is a little bit kind of theoretical. And I want some really, really easy stuff to do tomorrow morning. Because tomorrow morning's work day, and i got to go back to work, and... And I have a tough job, or I have something going on this week, and what do I do about it? So for me, I need to keep things really simple, like dirt simple. Three is too many. Two's good. One's the best. But I couldn't really come up with uh, just one thing for you. But I think there's two things that will help us. How do we apply these truths to our lives? And I want to remind you of this quote from JFK. Everybody's heard it, his famous line, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The interesting thing, and I'm not talking about politics. I I have no interest in politics. But that quote from JFK is actually very biblical. Turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, just a couple chapters over. A couple books over, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 5. And what what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage. And what I want you to listen for is a key thing. A couple key things of what are you going to do tomorrow morning as far as living out the Holy Spirit life in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13, you're going to notice the same kind of language again. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Again, that flesh is a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly and love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, this is Paul saying, instead, how about this? So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. No kidding, right? So what, what you, are not to do, you are not to do whatever you want. You're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So my first point here is we can put this up on the screen, is how do we live this out? We ask the question, what does the Holy Spirit want? Paul says very clearly, we're not supposed to do what we want. We're supposed to do what the Holy Spirit wants. 
And what is that going to look like? Well, the answer is up in verse 13. When we're doing what the Holy Spirit wants to do, it's going to look like verse 13. We're going to serve one another humbly in love. It's interesting. It's really not that hard to figure out who's following the Holy Spirit if you just look around and observe, observe their actions. I love the fact that Paul doesn't sugarcoat this either. He says the flesh and the spirit are in conflict. They're in absolute conflict. And it's a, for me, it's a daily battle. You know, maybe you guys don't have that problem, but for me, it's a daily battle. And I have to constantly ask, what does the Holy Spirit want? And sometimes, you know, I do okay with this. And other days, I'm just Captain You Planet. And I got all my things that I want to do. Uh, so you might want to try modifying your to-do list. Instead of all the things that I want to do, some of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do will show up on your to-do list. And I'll give you a hint. It's usually going to be names of people. Because that's what God's about. That's what the Holy Spirit's about. That's what Jesus is about. He's about people and loving people. And as you look at what you're going to do in any given day, ask, what does the Holy Spirit want for me? You know, it's interesting to me that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said that um, uh, our Father who is art in heaven, thy kingdom come, the kingdom land is the kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my will, your will, Jesus. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't want to go to the cross. And he asked the Father, if there's any way for me not to go to the cross, take that away. But then he said, but not what I want, what you want, God. And that's the way we're supposed to live this life. Now, for some of you, before we get to the last point, you want like the super practical, like give me the checklist. We got a bunch of pilots here, then they know what checklists are. I want to get that checklist out and click. So here's your four-point checklist for those of you that want it and need it. Some of you don't like checklists and four steps and all that. But here's the simple four-point checklist. Read the Bible. Read, pray, listen, obey. Read the Bible, pray, listen, and obey. And that's going to really help you. If you do that every day and really do that and actually obey, you're going to do well. And as you pray, you're asking the Holy Spirit, what do you want? Now, most of you are sitting here going, yeah, but there's sometimes I don't obey. I sort of said, I just do that. I hate that. What do you do then? Well, that gets to our last point. We're going to turn to our last uh, passage for tonight, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And when we, when we disobey, what we're really doing is what Paul says. We're indulging the flesh. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and then we're going to put up this last point on the screen. Uh, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's that battle again, light versus dark. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 9 is the clincher. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. As much as I hate it, I'm going to sin. And we put this last point up on the slide. This is the second part of your, your two-point thing tomorrow morning. Ask, what does the Holy Spirit want? 
And then when you blow it, confess sins quickly. Do it quickly. Don't let it soul, you know, just mold in your life and, and get things really, really nasty. Now, most of us, if you've been to church for a while, you're somewhat uh, uh, familiar with this concept of forgiveness. And if you look at verse 9 again, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but we're not tonight. I want to spend a little bit of time on the second part of that because people miss this. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us from all unrighteousness. What's that all about? Well, let me just illustrate that with a story because I think uh, it's the easiest way to explain what's going on there. Uh, Vicky and I have two daughters and uh, Jamie's our, our youngest. She's now 22. But when she was three years old, she was a very exuberant artistic type. Uh, she was the one that, uh, when we took her to the mommy and me painting class, as she was painting the easel and got a little bit of paint on her arm, she said, oh, that's cool. And she just kept going. And she painted her entire arm. We were watching her going, how far is she going to go? And she got her entire arm and hand painted. And then she started up her bicep. And that's when we stopped her. We have no idea how far she would have gone. But she was really you know, into it, full of life. So we had to put some rules and parameters around how she lived. And, and we had this little craft table in our, in our family room. And the rule for Jamie, our three-year-old, was you could color on the table, but you can't put the paper on the floor and color on the paper on the floor because the markers are going to bleed through and they're going to stain the carpet. So you know, you know what's coming, right? What does she do? She, one day, she gets all excited. She's on the floor. She's coloring. And it bleeds through and it stains the carpet. And it really stains the carpet. So she's violated the law, the law of dad and mom, which to a three-year-old is like the law of God. And she knows she's sinned, and she gets punished. She's in trouble, and she says she's sorry, and we forgive her her sins, and everything's kind of okay, and she's back to coloring. But here's what happened. Every time she walked into that room and saw the stain on the floor, her countenance fell. There was one time she actually started welling up with tears. She's already been forgiven. The sins have been forgiven. She knows that. She gets that. But she's reminded of the sin that she did when she looks at this stain. So what Vicky and I did one night, we stayed up for hours and scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, and we cleansed the floor. We purified the floor from the markers. And that's what John's telling us here, is when we confess our sins, God doesn't only forgive us our sins, but he purifies us from those sins. And the reason I bring this up, because it's so important, I think this is a missing thing in the Christian community now. We talk about forgiveness, but we don't go one step further, which is very biblical, and say, if you have something in your past that you've done, and you've asked God to forgive you for it, and you've been forgiven, yet it's constantly bopping into your head, that's from the kingdom of darkness. That's from the evil one reminding you and that's guilt, and that's not the way the Holy Spirit wants us to live. Well, the way the Holy Spirit wants us to live is free. So we clean the floor, and Jamie, the next time she walks by there, she sees that, she gets this beaming smile in her face because it's gone now, it's eradicated. And when God says, I will remember your sins no more, it's not that he has Alzheimer's. He's saying, I choose to not remember your sin, and you should go along with him and not remember that sin. So if you're here tonight and as I talk about this, there's something popping in your head 
I would encourage you tonight when you go take the Lord's Supper to talk to God about that. Talk to the Holy Spirit about that. Get the sin purified and cleansed from your life. So that's it. You know, the whole story of God ends with a really, really good ending, like a really good ending. Uh, there's going to be a day where we don't have to confess our sins anymore because we're not going to sin anymore. Amen. When Jesus comes back and the kingdom of heaven completely destroys the kingdom of darkness. In the meantime, I would encourage you just to think about the Holy Spirit a bunch. Have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, not only individually, but we need to do this as a community. And as a community, ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want Sunset to do? What do you want our missional community to do? And continue to prod the Holy Spirit because he's inside us and wants to lead us. And when we do mess up, we'll confess our sins quickly.